Hey, I'm Danny Mazer, and you are listening to the Soul Stories Podcast, an extension of Soul Stories, where we are creating connection through dialogue. In this season, I speak with community leaders and creatives as we explore meaningful topics and the obstacles that they have encountered along their paths. It's inspirational, it's fun, it's complex. Heather Lynn is an interdependent international singer-songwriter, poet, and founder and host of her in-depth talk show, Story Dwelling. Heather Lynn grew up in white, patriarchal, purity culture in Maine, where her inner artist had been crushed early on. In this episode, we take a deep dive into how we both dismantle and perpetuate sexual shame, white supremacy, and patriarchy. The themes are heavy, but the conversation is joyful and full of laughter. I had a blast doing it, and I hope you enjoy it as well. Hi, Heather Lynn. Hey, what's up, Danny? How are you? I'm doing pretty well. I'm happy to be here on the Soul Stories couch. Nice. Yeah, this is kind of the Soul Stories <laughs> it couch. It is. This is what I see, I think, each week on Instagram when you do your live thing with Chelsea. Yeah, that's yeah. true. A lot happens on this mint green couch. <laughs> this is actually the official headquarters of Soul Stories. Damn. Uh, financially. Mm. This is the LLC this headquarters. This is the hub. Yeah, this is where all the mail comes to. I love it. Do you get a lot of mail for Soul Stories? No, I get like credit card advertisers, you know. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like start the business account with us. <laughs> um, but I already have a business account if you're listening. Give your money to Soul Stories <laughs> so they money. don't have to use a freaking credit card. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, so we don't take out any credit card debt. Okay, so... Can you tell us where you're from, um, how you got started, what's happening for you? Sure. I'm originally from the state of Maine. I always need to say the state of Maine because sometimes I say Maine and people are like, you're, you're from Main Street? Like people just don't think about the state of Maine very often. You know what I'm saying? They think Main Street <laughs> before they think Maine. I don't know. I want to meet these people. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, originally from Maine and went to school in Massachusetts, lived in Minnesota for about 14 years, and now have been in Colorado for a couple of years. And this is my favorite so far. No offense to everywhere else I've lived in, all the people I have loved there. Nice. <laughs> yeah. what, what was your experience like growing up in Maine? I had a really challenging childhood, to be honest with you. I guess that's what this is about, right? To yeah. honestly, authentically tell one story. That's what we're here for. So, yes, it was a very difficult upbringing in Maine. Single mom with a high school education. So, under-resourced. There was no biological father in the picture. And, um, yeah, so it was tough. And she was working through a lot of her own shit and traumas and... And so we, we made it through and we were resilient, but it was definitely really challenging. So a lot of people have a very romantic picture of Maine and I really don't, but it is a beautiful state and everybody should visit it if they get a chance to. What's your picture of Maine? My picture of Maine, I remember, uh, well, some of my happier times were, was the drive from Bath, Maine to Searsport, Maine to visit my grandmother when I was a little Heatherland. And one of my favorite towns to pass was Camden, Maine. It had a castle in it. 
and mm. I liked to imagine things in castles. I, I had a very vivid imagination. I still do, actually. But yeah. What was your What was your yeah. vision of this castle? <laughs> well, if you don't mind sharing, this might oh. be the most vulnerable part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't really remember to be honest with oh, you. Okay, okay, okay. I just had fa- just fanciful ideas of castles and probably princessy things and shit like that Mm. (laughs) it's probably based in you know disney fairy tales and very patriarchal oriented stories nice (laughs) actually right into the patriarchy (laughs) (laughs) um what was your community like um how was it for you that's right okay so um i know you had asked me to maybe share a little bit about my religious background and how that interplayed with my life and my creativity and artistry. So totally. maybe I'll, um, you have a fascinating story. Oh, thank you. I'm glad that you think so because I don't know that I've always thought that <laughs> about it. Um, having a single mom and being under-resourced, we definitely did find community in the church in, on some level, right? Like people cared for us. We'd bring like Thanksgiving baskets or once in a while take me out for a new dress for a special occasion or something like that. So that was beautiful, right? Like we experienced a lot of generosity. And this is the Christian and church? Yes. Okay. Yeah. What denomination? Very. So we were first in a a united Pentecostal church in this tiny, this tiny little church in rural Maine, okay. white with a steeple, as you might imagine. Yeah, actually, that is exactly what I imagine when I yeah, think of a church in kind Maine. Of, kind of iconic and quintessential, right? Uh, yeah, um, yeah. And it was really interesting. Like, for me, it was fun because I was really young and didn't know fully what was happening in the you know with the with the meta narratives that were happening there right like i didn't have the analysis for that at like for you know 3 4 5 years old um and it was a very uh ecstatic community and so there was dancing and a lot of emotional expression and as an artist naturally i'm very expressive so there was dancing and i would roll under the pews at times and uh and i was a little person with a big voice and so they would be like sing for us so i remember leading the congregation in song at like you know four or five years old it was probably uh was that like a scary moment uh, I don't think it was for me. It, well, as I remember remembering it, it wasn't scary. No, really? I think I had a blast. I loved it. I so loved it. Yeah. And so you just felt mm-hmm. this like natural inclination to perform and express mm-hmm. yourself. For sure. And not like you didn't even have nerves at that time. No, I absolutely adored it. It's like what I was born to do and nothing had yet, uh, you know, made me scared of my own fire. But it was that same place where I have my first memory of my inner creator or my inner artist being told that that was not okay. And uh, what happened? And so it was the so it was the kind of uh, thing. So the rhythm of life in that church community was you would go to church on Sunday morning and you would go to church on Sunday night and Wednesday evening as well. And so one Sunday afternoon, uh, I was we were I was just chilling in our trailer we lived in a trailer at the time and i loved my mom's button tin and uh she just had this tin full of all these to me they were fascinating all these buttons you know some had 
two holes or four and they're all these different colors. And so I would sort them and organize them in all these different ways. And one Sunday afternoon, I decided I wanted to make a bracelet out of these buttons. And it was, you know, really basic and really simple. It was basically just a bunch of buttons strung together on their side. You couldn't even really <laughs> see, see them. But I was so freaking proud of this button bracelet, right? And uh, I wanted to wear it to church that night. So I did. And we went early because my mom did the bulletin board. She's very crafty herself. So scrapbooking wasn't a thing at the time, but she would cut out images from gift wrapping paper and stuff like that. And she would make it really beautiful and really eye-catching, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we went early to church that Sunday evening so that she could do the bulletin board. And I was like roaming the church halls on the lower level from what I remember. And I ran into Pastor Churchill. That was his name. Pastor Churchill. Pastor Churchill. And uh, he, you know, whatever, asked me how I was doing or something. Whatever grown-ups say to very little small people. (laughs) Um, And I was so proud of my button bracelet. And I was like, look at this this bracelet I made today out of my button, out of the buttons from my mom's button tin. And, and he looked down at me very sternly and he was like, Oh, the Lord wouldn't be pleased. Mm. And I was devastated. My poor little soul was like, (laughs) 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 my poor little soul was just like, Oh shit. I mean, I didn't, I don't think I knew that word then, but, but I knew that that was not a good thing. Like that, like, like something about that was a big deal. Like for the Lord to not be pleased, that was like, oh boy. That um, really registered with you, that like thought. Yeah, and I think I had no idea. I had no idea that at that time, my own inner fire and my own heart was being shut down. You know, that was yeah. like one little instance of it where like your creative expression and your desire to create is not okay. And I think it was because there, even though in that church, for some reason, somehow there was this very interesting juxtaposition where women could totally be in leadership and they could preach and they could teach and they could um, lead the songs and everything. But there were all of these rules, like women couldn't cut their hair or wear makeup or, wear jewelry or wear pants that wear long skirts and and stuff like that and so it was really interesting because it it was like a gift to me and very formative for me to see women in leadership and very powerfully stand up and be in leadership but then there were all of these other rules that that were just life squelching you know it's so strange to think about a form of patriarchy mixed with feminism in a strange way where Women are demonstrating leadership roles, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it's very clear that they don't get to choose their own expression of their mm-hmm. identity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like how many rules are really on the guys? Yeah, not too many. Like there was a rule about no mixed bathing, <laughs> which is just what a is way. mixed bathing? <laughs> I don't know, right? Let's talk Isn't about that, that weird? term. <laughs> it was like men and women couldn't swim together because you wouldn't want anybody, you know, you wouldn't want to see anybody half naked or like. <laughs> bathing? Be, yeah, swimming, you know. Right, you wouldn't want yeah. to be like tempted if you saw anyone half naked or something, you know. It's very 
puritanical. Yeah. And they chose the term bathing. <laughs> yeah, apparently that's the euphemism. Oh. You know, just to be on the safe side. Oh, it's like it's more Noth- fear based. Nothing if you call at all it. suggestive. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just picture like two grown people trying to share a bath. <laughs> Like, and one grown person being in a bath is already a challenge in itself. And so, yes, that, that that would make sense for you since you're very tall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How tall are you? Uh, I'm almost six two. Six two. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So puritanical culture. What does that mean? Yeah. Well, I you know of course I didn't realize it at the time, but looking back now, I'm like wow the influence of Puritanism is very influential not only in that sort of concentrated microcosm, uh, microcosmic culture I guess, but our whole our whole American culture is actually influenced deeply by Puritanism I think, and I think it probably messes with all of us on some level subconsciously because there is this like. I mean, right now there's like body positivity and sex positivity. Those movements are really thriving, I think, and moving forward. And people are beginning to talk more openly about the importance of sexual health and and all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the same time, Puritanism is pretty pervasive. There's kind of an undercurrent, I think, of um, a lot of, you know, sexual shame and like shame of our bodies shame yes, to show our bodies or that's right that's right and really any sort of erotic expression which could be just simply anything that's creative because because erotic energy is life force energy you know yeah and i feel like in some of these more conservative christian spaces that i grew up in um, that's taken to an even further level and it's called purity culture but really it's it's a it's a shame-based culture you know it's really not about purity at all i think it's based in the white patriarchy and wanting to control people you know can um, you explain more what do you what do you mean by that first define purity culture as you experienced yeah, it and how sure, that sure. relates to patriarchy yeah it's abstinence only education it's that sort of thing there was a movement that was thriving when I was in my younger, like preteens, teens called true love weights. And so we were asked almost like an altar call. If you've ever heard of that, an altar call to like come to Jesus or whatever, a similar feel to it. You'd be asked to sign a pledge that you would wait until you got married to have sex. I signed that. Did, in eighth did grade, you? yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. We should talk about that sometime. Yeah, we can talk about uh, it now. It's even. Okay. Do you do you want to share your experience of it? Um. Yeah, I do. After okay. I hear more about After you, hear more about, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was such a big deal. It was like a very sacred thing to share yourself in that way, and. But it was the the messaging was actually kind of abusive because, like for example, the metaphor of a chewed up piece of gum. Like if you have oh. sex, you're like a chewed up piece of gum, and if you give yourself away to too many people before you get married, you're just gonna be this old chewed up piece of gum, right? Right. And um and it's like which ch- has nothing to do abuse. with Jesus or God. No, at all. I don't think so. No, I mean. If you think about it, Jesus, I mean, this is just theorizing, right? This is very hypothetical. I have no data. I have no historical (laughs) evidence of this. But but Jesus 
died around 33, I think. And he never got married. And I don't know. Was he the 33-year-old virgin? Uh, Mary Magdalene was around. Mary Magdalene was around. (laughs) He had a lot of intimate friendships with guys. Like, I don't know. It was a different time period. mm, Anything could have happened. Yes. And, And there were rules around your sexuality in that context, too. But I don't know. Jesus was kind of a rule breaker, too. So... Anyway, I, I've never heard anyone say anything about Jesus's sexuality before. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I know, I, so I don't even know. Is it referenced? In the Bible? Yeah. No, there is no mention that Jesus was even a sexual being in the Bible. Well, <laughs> but you he, know. But he, if he was fully human, like... He had a reckless... Didn't he have a reckless teenage years that they don't talk too much about? I don't think there's really anything in there about the teenage years. So? So you never know. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> we could speculate all day long. <laughs> this is really fun. <laughs> this will be our next podcast. Something speculating that... <laughs> on Jesus' teenage years with no biblical data to back it up. Ugh. So something that's so interesting, though, is I have a friend. Her name is Dr. Tina Shermer Sellers, and she wrote this fascinating book on sex, God, and the conservative church. And she has worked with a bunch of young people who've come out of purity culture. And she says that it's only recently in clinical psychology that there is even a definition of sexual shame. And she says, really, it's very recent. Like I think 97, maybe don't quote me. You'd have to read her book to know for sure. It's so recent. And she said that, that childhood sexual shame symptomizes the same way childhood sexual abuse symptomizes. So that is not at all to minimize anyone's trauma from their childhood sexual abuse. Yeah. It is saying that sexual shame is really damaging. It's really destructive. Whoa, that mm-hmm. that's amazing. That gives me so much language to the shit I experience mm-hmm. to this day. Yeah, it validates the struggle, right? Yeah. And, and the how much, like, we were socialized into this particular narrative and we internalized a lot of that shame, and yet we know that it's not quite right, that there's something wrong with it, and we have to do something about it, right? Yeah. And so I feel like her work really encourages that, and is like, that's right, that should have never happened to you, here's some tools to help you heal. Wow, and, I wanna actually, yeah. I would actually, you can you share that with me? I will, yes. Um, I Yeah, because I have a crazy thing to this day, and I'm probably oversharing, but <laughs> when I, get when i go to have sex i i have just become i've normalized this because i've like worked through it therapeutically but i just know this is going to happen where my body becomes like almost repulsed by it Mm -hmm. a little bit like i don't want to do it Mm -hmm. but i do want to do it you know Mm -hmm. what i mean Mm -hmm. so i have to kind of like let that breathe for a second and then after i do have sex the next day is like pretty brutal Mm. like all these like crazy uncontrollable feelings come up yeah wow yeah it's wild and and do you connect them back to what you were taught in your earlier life oh yeah 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 i'm sorry for that that sucks it's crazy actually on the podcast um that we're gonna drop next week which won't make much sense to the listeners listening to this episode. But we, um, I, I read a story at our, 
event on sexual consent and it's mm-hmm. all about my experiences with sex and mm-hmm. my favorite line is I slowly massage Jesus's firm grip off my penis. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, and I just want to say, if I may, I, yeah. I actually really love that line. Yeah. I just want to say that it wasn't Jesus, you know, like Jesus, like Jesus was used right. <laughs> to, yeah. to do that, you know, yeah. to impose all of that bullshit. To put um, these restrictions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Jesus is fine. He doesn't really need a defense, but like, no, I hear what you're saying. You know what I mean? It's like this weird system. It's a weird narrative. You talked a little bit about it. Can you go into where the system and the religion meet each other and don't, you know, in your experience? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll, I'll first say, so one of the reasons I'm a huge fan of soul stories and, and one of the reasons that I have my own program story dwelling is uh, because I believe it is essential to our lives to recognize the shaping nature of narrative and all of the myths and stories that influence us and our thinking and our reactions. And you just gave a profound example of that, right? Where there's this particular myth that deeply impacts you and your life and your living. You know, and there's like meta-narratives from white patriarchy and I say white patriarchy because patriarchy is essentially white supremacy and it's colonialism intertwined Uh uh-huh and because it you know it didn't come from people of color the patriarchy didn't (laughs) right they would have to be Uh, in a position of power to even create that power structure that's right that's right yes and and there's all these meta narratives there's political narratives and various iterations of american politics right there's religious narratives different philosophies of life that people ascribe to and then there's our family stories and there's roles that we were given and characters we were asked to play in our families you know and usually not explicitly right it's just how things unfold in your family and so i think it's really vital to our healing and our full aliveness to to take a look at all that shit and I think we're, we have to do it before we can then write the story that we really want to write with our lives. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to give that as, as context for my perspective <laughs> around how I interpret my growing up and how all of that influenced me. So I see it's very easy to see patriarchy in there for a lot of reasons. Uh, when you talk about the system and the religion in the particular context, And what was interesting is that, you know, for a while, some things can be really useful to you. And then when you grow up, you start to realize it's not as beneficial as it used to be. Growing up without a father in my life, I was like, oh, cool. Like, God can be my father. Like, oh, like God can be my protector and my provider and fill in that space. And so I was like, yay, I have, I do have a daddy. I have a spiritual daddy, you know. But then I ended up projecting all of my abandonment issues onto God, <laughs> um, which was uh, readily supported by all of these things where it was like, well, God loves you, but you have to do this, but you have to believe these particular things and you have to look a certain way and act a certain way and talk a certain way, really, which that really was like, you need to fit into this particular culture and uh, dress a certain way, use these certain words to sound spiritual. And this plays out in a lot of different, I'm sure that some people in yoga culture have experienced a similar thing, you know, where you 
you know, where you have, uh, you know, you, you, you have particular practices or language verbiage that you use to sound like you're really a conscious person or you're enlightened yeah, or right. it happens know, in any community. That's right. It can happen everywhere because this is how humans function and organize themselves and make sense of their world and their lives. Right. Mm-hmm. Spiritual bypassing would be an example. I feel like a lot of, um, in the culture I grew up in and also, um, I see this in, in, you know, kind of some current pop culture spirituality uh oh i feel it in my community all the time really yeah totally yeah any particular way or i just um i see like you know it's interesting to talk about meditation and buddhism and hinduism etc which are accepted in my community to really Mm -hmm. like love and adore and take lessons from Mm -hmm. and often Christianity is the opposite Mm -hmm. but it's like I don't know to me it's just like replace one with the other Mm -hmm. in some ways people take what they want from it and then use it to justify some poor habits that just aren't like good for them and I I think Mm -hmm. it comes and this is a little judgy and condescending I recognize that but it it sounds like you're working it out to me. Like yeah. you're okay. kind of going like something's something's not quite right here or quite aligned in your leg. Like it's, yeah, it's like there, Thich Nhat Hanh's my favorite and mm-hmm. he talks about. He's wonderful. There's a time for like meditation. Yeah. And there's a time for deep looking. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. I, I've just run into a lot of examples where like, oh, if we're just present, just be present. Just just be present. We're, we need to be present, which is like, <laughs> to me is like, okay, well, what fucked you up in the past, you know? Yeah, sure. And sure. What, what are you dealing with? Maybe it didn't fuck you up, What? but what influenced your present? Mm-hmm. And what are you looking towards in the future? And mm-hmm. there can be a way of being present that really is just a way of avoiding uncomfortable feelings, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, the present isn't a vacuum, like you're, right, you're exactly. present and everything like you carry in your body memories. And even if you have put them out of your mind, your body still carries them unless you address them, Yeah, you know? And, um, I think anticipation of the future is also a real part of the present. You know, it's just not a vacuum. It's not no. an, an insular thing. And I'm sure there's people who define present in that way mm-hmm. as what we would aspire to. Mm-hmm. And I've also heard people who use it as a way of ignoring. Yeah, that's right. Because you can hold space for yourself. So I am a yoga teacher too. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I love yogic philosophy and Buddhism and all these things. And uh, so I really, really value the practice of presence. I feel like it can come down to simply valuing the person or the people that you're with in the moment. They're the most important people in the world at that time, right? Yeah. Uh, There's so many ways you can practice presence, even just simply being aware of your anxiety or anticipation of the future and then holding it without attachment to it or trying to, right? It's a, it's a practice, oh, right. when, you know, when you get a grip on it. Yeah. It, and, and just having a lot of compassion for all the things, you know, that arrive at the present moment, yeah. which could include the past things surfacing, 
up in emotional ways that you're not comfortable with, which happens, you know, as a musician, I see that happening for people because music taps below the surface and oh. starts to get things stirring and rumbling and can make you go like, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah. <know? laughs> oh God, music. It's everything to me. Is it? Yeah, I love it. That's where I go for spiritual guidance. You and me both. So as a musician and an artist, I had my first memory of my artist creative being squelched after I made that button bracelet. Yeah. And then I actually think this element of purity culture, it's not just an element. It was really pervasive and insidious. I think that really inhibited my creative nature, my creative artistic nature. So, you know, yeah. Something I'm curious about in, in that, like before we move on is like purity culture to me was just like no sex before marriage. Mm hmm. Um, but it sounds like there was like another level to what you experienced too that involved self-expression too. I believe so. I, and I'm still theorizing about it and yeah. kind of trying to explore that and figure that out, the source of that. And part of it is because yogic philosophy leads me to consider it. it. When you explore energy centers in the body, the same space in the body that holds sexual energy is the same space that holds creative energy. And it's life force energy. I don't know if I'm repeating myself at this point, but but yeah, I think that um, if the impact of sexual shame is as bad as my friend Dr. Tina says it is, it makes sense that it would impact other aspects of our lives. And because it is our whole lives, like everything around us is life force energy, you know? So, uh, so it makes sense that the masterminds behind patriarchy and the per per perpetrators of it <laughs> would want to shut down uh, sexuality, you know, because that puts you in more power. And I just have to say, you know, of course, like I've been an unconscientious perpetuator of, you know, patriarchy and, and all oh, these things, yeah. you know, like me too. Um, for we're, sure. we're so socialized into these narratives, but they are imposed constructs. They're not like natural law or divine law, you know, and like, how long has it even been pop culture to question patriarchy, you know? Right. It's a couple of years, a mm -hmm. year, like we're just reckoning with it. That's right. And it is a reckoning. That's an yeah. amazing word for it. And I think even though there are so many people who are getting, I think conscious is a, is a good word for that. Like getting conscious to the oppression of it, the imprisonment of it. There are a lot of people who really want to still be in those positions of power and you know and I still work through like what as a white woman what's the power that I need to be relinquishing yeah. at least when it comes to power over like there's it's a different thing if you're talking about true soul strength and power with but power over is uh the thing that is uh evil I want to say actually just go for the jugular <laughs> like it's totally you know yeah um, it's, I mean, as a white male, I know the parts of my life that have been made easy mm -hmm. by being a white male mm -hmm. and like, I'm, I'm by no means trying to create sympathy for it. And like, part of me is like, well, do I want to lose that? <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. it's like, oh, I have this road right here that I can mm -hmm. walk down. That's mm -hmm. kind of been paved clear for me. Mm-hmm. And like the natural, like animal human in me, which I think we got to give credit to is mm -hmm. like, oh, that's the, that path is pretty clear right now. And that's cool. Mm -hmm. And so like to challenge that 
for me is like, uh, like, damn. Okay. Like I end up getting challenged by my friends when I say something fucked up mm-hmm. and they're just like, Danny, like, what are you talking about? Like, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm in this. I'm deep, deeply entrenched in this and I have to lift myself out of it. And then yeah. it's an active process mm-hmm. Yeah, to and be on it. That's right. There is a reckoning that maybe happens more than one time because you have to actively engage it and be self-aware and emotionally intelligent and right. humble, right? And have a good education. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, not, not everyone has a good education either to do it. That's right. Yes. And I think, so humility is, is like massive, right? Because, so our friends at Soul to Soul, if you've ever heard of them, Soul soul, soul to Soul, (laughs) they talk about how perfectionism is a symptom of white supremacy. Yeah, I've heard this. Which would kind of make sense, right? Because if you're set up to be better than everybody else, then you have to like... (laughs) Reach a high fucking standard. That's right. And be pretty rigid and you have to be right all the time and... Right. And so I'm like, wow, I really want to dismantle perfectionism within myself and opt for humility instead. And if I really care about this, like the dismantling of the white patriarchy and white supremacy, I have to try. Right. Like I have to say the things that matter um, and use my position for that. And if I fuck up, then hell yes, I want to set that right and learn from that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's important to take the kind of risks Mm -hmm. to talk about this stuff and figure out what it is and, and educate ourselves. So hopefully we don't hurt our friends of color. Right. Hey all it's Danny here. If you like what you are hearing, please consider supporting us through Patreon for as little as $1 a month. You get access to bonus podcast content and help us build the movement. You can find a link in the episode description. Now, let's get back to the episode. And then if we do fuck up, to just be like, I'm fucking sorry. Yeah, god damn it. God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Luckily, most of my friends are incredibly gracious, you know, and do trust the best and already know we're not perfect, right? So (laughs) Yeah. It's a good place to start from. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) For everybody involved. Yeah. Yeah. It's to not be perfect. Totally. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. your, your creative expression squelched. What drives you? What keeps you on that path to creative expression? Because you're an artist. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And what? where did you... How did you keep going? What was inside you? What was that journey? Yeah, that's a yeah, that's a great that's a great that's a great wide open question, Danny. Thank yeah. you so much. That was like seven, so <laughs> <laughs> sounds like I could say whatever I want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you know, I am grateful for the community and generosity and the platform that I did experience when I was in that context. And I also recognize that now that I was really shut down. In college, I went to a Christian college as well, where I um, I was going to study voice, and it was a great program. It was a little bit too classical for me, and I knew that I didn't want to sing classically. I didn't want to sing opera or whatever. I wanted to be a, like more of a folk artist and a singer songwriter, not just folk. Like I let all sorts of genres influence me. You know, I love rock and I love pop and all of it really. 
And even now I'm like, it might be fun to do a rock opera or something, you know? The rock <laughs> opera. That would be so funny. Yeah, maybe I could write one about my life after we do this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> that like, sounds great. That was like an 80s thing, right? I think so, yeah. Great. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, just like everybody's story in Soul Stories, we could just create a rock <laughs> opera. That's our next phase. <laughs> sounds off tune. If I'm involved, at least. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Fair enough. There were a lot of different reasons, kind of um, what I would say were maybe unconscious socioeconomic microaggressions that just fed into my shame and inadequacy as uh, growing up a poor person, you know, and now being at this college because I got a scholarship and some loans and the reinforcement of my inadequacy kept happening for me. And eventually I decided to study theology and youth ministry, which... I don't know what good those those degrees are doing me now, but at the time it was amazing for me because the theology degree helps me think more critically about the narrative I grew up in. And by the way, I was never taught to think critically. I was told to not question anything. So there was definitely a cultish characteristic about it mm-hmm. where it was just the people in leadership and usually it's usually men, white men, who got to say what would please the Lord or not, or what was, or yeah, how you should interpret the, the mouthpiece. You know, that's right. And yeah, that's, it, it's not going to work to just have one perspective on it, on any, any scripture, right? Like, but like what an excellent way to keep power, <laughs> you know, like that's right. what an amazing yeah. tool that's right. is to say something that we can't see mm-hmm. or hear mm-hmm. has talked to me and told mm-hmm. me I have power mm-hmm. over you. Yeah. And I really, I realized recently, no wonder there, because there was a time that I thought, well, maybe it's not God's will. Cause that was a big thing. Like what is God's will for your life? Right. And I, I, I had actually had this idea that maybe it wasn't God's will for me to do this thing that I wanted to do the most. And that's just to sing for people. Right. Mm. And to sing over people like things that are life-giving and fun and healing. So how could that possibly be bad, right? But I think that we were told so often to not trust our own hearts. Like we were never told to follow our hearts. We were told that they were evil and desperately wicked. And so we had to, you know. Like filled with desire. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I think that that's one of the things that I associate with the oppression of purity culture. Because it's like, well, all of this messaging works together to basically tell you that you're not worthy of your own desires and how the fuck do you know what's best for you? You know, which is, which is also very colonialistic, right? Like for, for white people to go into a tribe or a culture and to be like, Oh, we, we have what you need. You should become a Christian or whatever it is. Right. And then you should wear these clothes and you should look like this and you can, you should take on our ethics and our standards of society because we're more civilized. And so that's where I feel like what I grew up in is a microcosm of that whole mindset that unfortunately has touched most of the globe. And so I feel a responsibility to, to speak about that and help you know, shed light on it, shed light that these things are the shame of them lurks in the dark, in the corners. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and so I'm just like, no, let's take a, let's take a big ass look at this <laughs> and open it up and show it for what it really is, you know, which I think can be scary for 
many people who grew up in it, who Absolutely. rely on it, mm-hmm. who find it as an anchor because right. to question it is to, mm-hmm. well, maybe if I question it, it won't be what it was for me. And, mm-hmm. and who am I when it's not there for me? That's right. I'm so, so grateful that I got to do a lot of my deconstruction within community, within, in the context of other people who were asking great questions and, you know, allowed the freedom of doubt and saw doubt as a, as a, a real aspect, a, a vital aspect of faith. Like faith isn't truly faith in, if you don't have doubt as a part of it. Right. And I'm so grateful that I had people walking beside me on that journey with me because I know others who will deconstruct or they feel like when they've lost their faith, they also end up losing their job or they'll lose their spouse or both. Like I have friends who've experienced that. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's massive. A completely different life, mm-hmm. life or a perspective on life. Mm-hmm. And I really think that dismantling any narrative and taking an honest look at how it's impacted you and your formation and your perspective, that takes so much courage and compassion, mm-hmm. you know? It's like, um, I feel like there's something about this I can compare to healthy eating or healthy living Hmm. where it's like, you know, this thing that's right in front of you could be candy or it could be just like a cheeseburger or something that tastes really good and feels familiar and comforting. Sure. Yeah. And you just keep eating that and you hear like about healthy eating and how, what it can do, but you don't really know Mm. what that's like. And you just keep living this lifestyle where you're not working Mm. out or you're not eating right, whatever. Mm -hmm. And until you have the experience of first saying no, Mm -hmm. and then saying no a few times and building up a habit and then Mm -hmm. like feeling what it feels like and replacing it with something else. Right. Right. And you feel so much healthier and better it's like, I feel that same way just in my experience of growing up in the Catholic church of like questioning mm-hmm. until you can like, or not, maybe not even the Catholic church, maybe just the idea of deconstructing a narrative mm-hmm. when a narrative becomes so essential to you. You're like, this is, what am I, what, what, what do you want me to do without this? You know? And then when you question and deconstruct it and you have your first experience of letting go of something unhealthy, you're like, Mm. Oh my God, I was holding on. That's the thing. That's the thing for 10 years Mm -hmm. that I wanted to hold on to. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden it's actually the thing that made me feel Mm -hmm. not so great. And you actually can make that decision. There's like this little dose of liberation and empowerment Mm -hmm. and newness and life. Yeah. Yeah. And it builds on top of itself and Mm -hmm. leads to healing in whatever capacity. I don't even mean it in religion, just like generally. Right. Yeah. I do want to talk more about your artist career, but I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. Do you separate faith and religion? So um, I have multiple answers to this. Yeah. (laughs) When I was growing up, we would say that we weren't religious. We had a relationship with Jesus, Mm. but it was totally religion. There was totally a system of thought and 
a rhythm of practice. And really, I think the basic definition of religion is like something that you habitually do. Right. Uh, like a structure. The, yeah. Rituals. You know, you, I mean, maybe you lunch religiously, you know. I know a lot of people these days are saying I'm spiritual, not religious, you know, seeking to differentiate between, I think, the rigidity and the oppression that a lot of organized religion has brought. And I think that's a valid distinction if you want to focus more on on spirit and soul and um, and often those contexts still end up having an aspect of religiosity to them. I'm personally not very good at compartmentalizing anything. So to me, everything is spiritual. Everything's earthy. <laughs> really? You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, really, I think everything is sacred and everything is profane in a lot of ways, you know, or at least they can be. So I don't know that I do separate them. Mm-hmm. I think they're, I think that faith for me is somewhat a practice and also something that just happens and I'm surprised by it because, you know, I have people would say in that, in the conservative environment, like if you don't hold on to this particular version of faith or particular version of Jesus or whatever it might be, then it's just a slippery slope, you know? And they would say it is a really negative thing. Like you're just going to fall from grace or whatever they might say. And I want to say, you know what? It is a slippery slope, but it's a great one. Yeah. It's a really fun one. Like, I mean, you love slides, don't you? Yeah. Depending (laughs) on how scary they are. There's some big ass slides. (laughs) You would need a big one. (laughs) Um. But, you know, once I kind of had my initial spiritual emancipation, I was I was actually working in a church. So I, you know, in college I had I set aside my hopes of becoming a singer songwriter. I I just was like, well, maybe I don't have what it takes. Like I was kind of given some of those messages. You don't have what it takes. And I was like, well, maybe it's not God's will. So I'll work with youth and I'll study theology, which I'm always fascinated by theology, comparative religions, philosophy. Like I love all the stories. And so once I had my initial kind of spiritual emancipation, which thankfully happened because I had a mentor, a theological mentor who walked with me through these really difficult questions that I had to face because, I mean, they were part of my development and my formation. I was kind of brainwashed, you know, and so I had to do some really hard work to to deconstruct and deprogram. That's the word I'm looking for is deprogram myself. Yeah. And he was so patient with me and let me ask the same questions over and over and over again. I played the devil's advocate because I just needed to make sure that I could do this, that I could let go of these, some of these principles and premises that I was told I had to believe. And so I'm grateful that he walked with me through that work. And in that moment when I, I viscerally felt a release in my body, I felt a weight come off me. What it was for me, Danny, is I was like, oh, if there's a God, then this is then it's love that would make them God. Right. Like, of course, God would love people. I don't know how to love. And like, of course, God would love people I want to love, even though the church told me that I couldn't love them. 
And then above that, God would love people I don't know how to love, right? Like if there's a God, that's what I mean. What, like, what is that connection for you? Yeah, for me, I mean, so I, I think part of the connection for me in at that time, and this now was like maybe 15 years ago <laughs> or more, maybe I'm losing track of time. <laughs> I actually do think that Jesus teachings were radical and totally founded in love. And then the church totally enmeshed in white patriarchy, which, by the way, Jesus was neither white nor American nor Roman citizen. Whoa, whoa, he did whoa, not whoa. speak Let's, English. Hold on. This I is just, just want to put that out there. White Jesus <laughs> <laughs> runs this country. <laughs> yeah, and it's a complete mythology. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I actually now when I look back at, at Jesus teachings, I'm like, he was really fucking feminist and totally defied the powers that were. And so I think there were some of those things that made a connection for me, like Jesus representing the divine, where I was like, OK, yeah, that makes more sense now. I remember asking a question when I was a little Heatherlin, like probably sixth grade or maybe even younger. So I went to a Christian school too for a few years when I was growing up. And there were these character elements, these character lessons. And there was a scripture verse that was quoted and we were being taught basically to be careful who you befriend, right? Which is generally speaking, a good thing to teach kids, like to be, be thoughtful about yeah. who you befriend. I wish, I wish that I were equipped with resources to not befriend narcissists, frankly. Like that would have helped me a lot along the way. If they taught me that, like I would have really appreciated that. They probably even know the term um, narcissist at that time. That's probably true. Because <laughs> yeah, I'm so ancient. Nobody even knew what a narcissist was at the time. <laughs> Um, but I remember asking the question, so, okay, okay, right, all right, so we're not supposed to be friends with people who do bad things, but didn't Jesus hang out with people who were considered, like, outside of the rules and on the margins? And you asked that as a kid? I did. I was like, doesn't the Bible say that Jesus hung out with um, sinners and... And they're like, no questions, Heather Lynn. <laughs> like, and the word in there is tax collectors, which basically in the historical con context represents like people who exploited their position of power. But he hung out with those who were willing to like open up to the fact that they were wrong, I think. And in that particular case... I'm digressing. I, I apologize. Um, but yeah, I asked this question and they were basically like, well, you're not Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. That's um, right. Heather Lynn. Okay. They put it right back in. Your okay. Super <laughs> confusing. Be like Jesus, but you're not Jesus. <laughs> you're <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. So that actually does to, that actually does lead me to an interesting thought because if Jesus was representing the divine on some level, but maybe also calling out the divine within each of us, I wonder if he was, because he said shit like, you are the light of the world, you know? And he also was like, before he was like, one of his last conversations with his followers was like, you're going to do things that are even greater than what I've done. 
That's stated? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I'll show it to you sometime if you want to see it. Yeah, I would. That's cool. So that makes me really curious and gives me a lot of wonder about what we're capable of when it comes to the power of love and the power of consciousness and stuff like that. How do you find music in this journey? Where do they intersect in your journey and Mm -hmm. even today? Well, music is everything, Danny. Yes. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Already there. Already, already got there. I, uh, I don't know a whole lot about quantum physics, but quantum physics will pretty much tell us that the components of our whole lives are similar to the hum of a guitar strum, Mm. you know, like, is that your theory? Harmonies and vibration, you know? Yeah. I have a poem about that. Do you want to hear it? Sure. Okay. She moves as though she is made of music, her breath an exchange of song between her very essence and the concert of reverberations ever composing the world around her. Her inhale and exhale, participation in the cacophony of harmony and dissonance, vibration and resonance, spinning, floating, Gently suspending and certainly binding together the elements of the universe. Everywhere she goes, she sees the song around her and feels the song in everyone she meets. She herself muse and her life living poetry spun of magic and mist and moonlight. She moves as though she is made of music and perhaps she is. Mm, I like that last line. (laughs) What does that mean to you? Well, I do think that we are made of music on some level, just like I believe we're made of the stories we tell ourselves and the stories we're told. And I would like to remember that more often, that music is in us and we are music. And it really is too important to be left to the professionals even though I'm a professional musician, (laughs) like everybody can sing and everyone should sing if they want to. I think we used to as humans, you know, if you imagine sitting around the campfire, it was all stories and songs, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, the first first instrument was probably the voice. The second was probably the drum. And I think that's really important. I think it really matters. And music has been life to me. I think it's part of what gave me my resilience through all of my growing up, the shitty childhood things and some of the emotional and psychological abuse that I experienced both in the home and in the church, which was such a significant aspect of my life. And it's also where I found my sense of significance, you know, what I had to offer to the community. And so I think after I had my spiritual emancipation, that allowed me to open up to the realization that it wasn't just bullshit that I wanted to sing for anybody who wanted to listen to me. You know, Mm. I, it was actually after that or, or alongside of that, that I had this huge awareness that I had never not wanted to write songs and share them with people to record them and to sing all over the place, you know, or in many places. It was a bit of a quarter life crisis, actually, I think, 
because uh, my partner and I had been married for a couple of years and everybody was asking us like kind of all the time, uh, when are you going to have children? When are you going to have children? When are you going to have children? (laughs) You know, and if if that isn't kind of part of the steps in the typical, it really is. That's really part of the patriarchal narrative too, that you, that you have to have these particular steps. Like obviously having children isn't like, that's a very human natural thing that happens. Right. But the young, Um, the young having children and you're young and my experience has been very entwined with like Christian Catholic mm -hmm. communities. Yeah, that's right. That there are these steps that you're supposed to take mm-hmm. um, in a particular order, too. Yeah. Right? Um, so it was it was around that time of wondering if I wanted to do that, if I wanted to have kids and get a home and get a house and make that investment. Simultaneously with uh, coming across an old journal entry from a couple years before when I had just done like a new year's entry of 10 things I wanted to do that year and it included writing songs and recording and I looked at it and I was like oh fuck like I never did it Mm. and I've never not wanted to do it right and so I just had this moment of it was like a crossroads in my life and I knew in the deepest way of knowing that if I went in this one direction that was expected of me that And if I didn't at least try and give it my best shot to live the call of the song in my life, if I didn't at least try, uh, I would end up regretting and resenting my life. Mm. I just knew in (laughs) so profoundly. Yeah. And um, luckily my partner is really a magician at like sonic scaping, doing live sound and lighting design. And so we had some compatible uh, and we still have some compatible gifts uh, to do that work. So, uh, so he was on board and just super supportive of knowing that I needed to do that for myself and that we could do this together. And, and we had had kind of a pipe dream of that anyway, before we had gotten married, but we had just kind of set it aside because it didn't seem pr- practical. And, um, and ever since we got over the practicality of it, we've been living crazy lives that, um, are very impractical, honestly. So is is that like touring? Yeah. We, we both quit our regular paycheck jobs in 2009 Mm -hmm. and had a little bit of savings and just immediately began to work our networks and friends and family around the country and started touring in 2010 and not even fully knowing how it would work out, uh, not fully knowing how we would pay our bills, but knowing this is something that we had to do. And since we had like quit our jobs and shit and refinanced some things, we were like, there's no turning back now. <laughs> and pretty much for the past decade, it's at, at various impasses, it's kind of been like, we've already given up so much for this. We've already sacrificed so much. There's really no turning back now. And this is still really all we want to do. And, and I think this is pretty obvious, but like looking back now, how do you feel about that decision? There are times that I've gone, could I have been more, uh, I don't know, smart about it. But I think in my particular context at the time and what I knew at the time, it was the, the right decision. It was the best decision I knew how to make then, you know? Yeah. So, and I can't actually go back and change it now. So, <laughs> nope, that's a good point. 
Um, do you feel, do you feel grateful that you took that risk? Yes, I do. Yes. And I'm grateful that there are people all along the way who have shown incredible hospitality on the road or who have noticed the struggle and written out a couple hundred dollar check, you know, or there's been times on the road where the van will break down or a tire needs to be replaced or so for our safety and ability to keep going, there are people who've been like, we believe in you. We'll send you money for this. And I'm really grateful for that. Mm. Incredibly grateful. Most support networks are everything. mm -hmm. And we had tried to start something we had called at the time a CSA, like community supported agriculture, but instead community supported artistry. So we had tried to start something like that even, um, 10 years ago. Wow. You're kind of on the forefront. We were actually, and I don't think people really got it and they weren't quite ready for it. But when the Patreon platform came out, um, which I know soul stories is on Patreon, mm-hmm. I actually became one of your patrons. Yeah. Because I really believe in soul stories. Um, that platform is working. I'm really grateful for that community. We have about 87 patrons of our, our own. Really? And Holy um, shit. That's incredible. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank you to all of you who might be listening, our patrons who are listening. That is a significant piece of our pie and has kept us going. Not only, um, you, you know, a lot of people have along the way in like genuinely, they've genuinely received from the gifts we've had to offer. They genuinely love the music and they're like, keep going. It matters. And I've always appreciated that emotional encouragement. And at the same time, I think they didn't know and I didn't know how to let them know that it wasn't really enough. You know, the emotional encouragement is wonderful. The sentiment is beautiful and appreciated. And also we need resources to keep going, you know. And so when people put their resources behind their sentiment, that means the fucking world to me, you know. Yeah, Um, I mean, it's really... It's a really sign. It's a real sign of like faith and love and support. That's right. And, and we really believe in you and, and we're going to help you make it possible to keep going instead of only telling you to keep going. You know? yeah. And so I'm really grateful for that. And that we started doing that. I think we're in our third year of doing Patreon. Damn, and you were even on the forefront of that. Oh, well, how long how we've old been working we've been working on this for a long time. So yeah. I don't really know actually okay. how long Patreon's been around, but I really appreciate the work they're doing and we'd been touring really hardcore for a few years and knew we needed to kind of even out a little bit. We I definitely got pretty burnt out on the gig economy and the system and and I don't know if a lot of people know how draining the gig economy is to artists and musicians. It sounds brutal. It is brutal because, I mean, just one key factor is that you have to work for your work. And yeah. nobody pays you to do that upfront work. And sometimes people don't even know how to like properly value you or understand what it means that you need to create a livelihood around this. You oh, know? man, the abuse of artists in our society is <laughs> rampant. <laughs> Yeah, especially those who aren't in like the 1% of artists, you know, there's, I mean, there's kind of a parallel to the rest of the population in the artist 
in the musician world, you know, the 90 and one. Mm -hmm. So the 1% are the people that everybody knows of. Everybody knows of the 1% of musicians and they're doing really well. And I'm really happy for them that it's worked out for them. And that also is another systemic thing that we could talk about for ages, you know, about capitalism, consumerism and celebrity culture and what that's done to all of us Yeah. and how it's put really legitimate and really good artists and musicians in a place of struggle, which is not like the starving artist narrative is bullshit. That's not the way that it should be, you know, like, mm -hmm. and, and so that's why I'm grateful uh, Patreon right now seems like the best way to do it in my mind to build a community around you to, to do this for community and with community instead of just be out there on your own. There's so many times that I used to just feel so much despair because I was still operating out of all of those isolated kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps myths, which really are myths like those are bullshit too you know in our american economy it's not really true that if you work hard you can get and be anything you want to you know yeah there's if, a lot more to it that's right if you're in certain kinds of if you have certain kinds of privilege or a stroke of luck or certain connections yeah there's a lot more to it than hard work and even smart work you know yeah yeah anyway so keeping it real <laughs> yeah, that's been this whole hour. Just straight real. Yeah. What's next for you? What are you... Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are some goals, ambitions? Yeah. Well, I mentioned story dueling, so I'd love to tell everyone about story dueling. Yeah, totally. That's uh, a show that I started using the Facebook Live platform. When we started Patreon, actually, it was because we started this Live Online with Heather Lynn series wanting to to taper off some of our time on the road, still love the road, still still do some touring and stuff, but felt like this online series could be a great way to keep connected to people that we met all around the country and the world in our touring. And storytelling turned out to be one of my favorite components of this. And it's sort of like an in-depth talk show where I, as a, since I'm a singer-songwriter, I weave in live song uh, that I feel is relevant to the conversation that I'm having. And I have guests that I feel are doing something, uh, you know, good and beautiful and hopeful in the world. So it's, it's kind of, it's, it's focused on that person's story. And then also I hope I'm all, I also hope for it to be a humanizing alternative news. Like there, there are good things happening in the world. You know, there's good people doing good stuff in the world. Mm. And so storytelling I define as cultivating a courageous, compassionate curiosity for ourselves and one another, recognizing the shaping nature of narrative. And so my attempt is to invite people into a practice of taking a deeply listening posture um, of the person sharing their story and of what's occurring within themselves in response to that story, you know? Mm. And um, I'd love to have you on that show sometime. Yeah. Return the favor here. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to. Yeah. Just keep talking to you, really. Yeah, that's right. We'll just, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Keep finding different brands to keep this conversation mm -hmm. going. Sounds good. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. And actually, I feel like you have done for me in this podcast what people tell me I do for them through story dwelling mm. in terms of honoring story and valuing it and and just what that does for someone, you know, it's yeah. really beautiful. It's a powerful so I'm, gift. I'm really grateful to you. Thank you. 
And in terms of other ambitions and goals, I'm part of a collective, an international collective of artists called Nine Beats. Okay. Yeah. I've seen this. What is this? Yeah. I know all these other things, but I don't understand. Mm. I don't know Nine Beats. Yeah. We have a collective of people all over the country from Uganda, Denmark, Australia, all over the United States and all over the UK who put together a double album of spoken word and song. Mm. And it's pretty, I'm really proud of it. I have about five songs on there that I've either completely written or I've co-written. Wow. And it's uh, a big deal if there's that many people on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. And the spoken word is powerful. It's justice oriented uh, by my friend Eric, who lives in Malibu. And actually, you wouldn't know it. Like, it definitely does not sound like a Christian album. So you wouldn't know that the content is primarily inspired by the Beatitudes, which is like a, a seminal work of Jesus teachings. That, yeah. That Are there nine poetry? Eight or nine, depending on how you parse it out. Oh, okay, okay. So, so this, yeah, we went with nine, but okay. you know, this is a, I think a really beautiful poetic representation of the wisdom that is in Jesus teachings. Beatitudes were definitely mm -hmm. the thing I left being like, okay, I, mm -hmm. I really appreciate the Beatitudes. Mm -hmm. Because they, they do question power. You know, they say things like, blessed are the merciful. Uh, blessed are... Is this blessed the are the meek, for mm -hmm. they will inherit the earth? That's Is right. that a beatitude? Mm -hmm. Okay. All of that. So, I mean, in that, I hear Jesus essentially turning every narrative and system and construct inside out and upside down. You know, and he's just like, fuck that shit. <laughs> right. Like all of the people that you consider to be losers, um, they're the winners pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I do value about, um, you know, what I was brought up in. But anyway, we have a tour coming up and I'm excited for that. And we're going to have Denver? some, uh, through, it's going to be in California actually. Okay. And we have some new songs that are being produced right now in process um, as we're able to. And those will, six new songs that will be coming out soon. So I co-wrote them with Steve Bassett. He's the lyricist. I'm the musician on those. And those cool. will be coming out probably in the coming year. And nice. Like in 2020? I think so. Yeah. Hopefully. Um, we were hoping to have them out sooner but sounds like but creative projects they're, they're so, that's right that is the nature of creative projects yeah and i'm continuing to build patreon and um i have pause story dwelling for a moment but that will be resuming in 2020 i get and the invite and it's not even happening <laughs> i see what's happening <laughs> well you know we're in transition right now we're in quite a liminal space presently so uh are you coming to our liminal event you keep saying i am liminal. coming to that oh, okay I was, like, I was like, does she know about liminal? That is why. <laughs> that is probably why it's in the forefront of my consciousness. Oh, because it's such a gorgeous word and phrase. It is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to, to connect with Soul Stories because you all are doing things that I have been thinking about and wondering about for years, actually. Like, how can I build community around this idea of story dwelling mm. and actually take it deeper and farther where people are actually practicing this, not just by observing a show or ascribing idealistically to that to the idea of it but how can it actually manifest and be worked out in community where there's tension where there's conflict even or or whatever it is so i just am excited to hang out with y'all and be yeah. a witness or a supporter that's what whatever. we're pushing towards hopefully we get there 
that mm-hmm. conflict tension connection thing <laughs> that's like the mythical beast that doesn't exist <laughs> you want to stir it up i want to stir it up <laughs> that's our goal i get cool. one of our teammates is a total pot stirrer and he mm. brings that energy and it helps a lot mm, cool yeah well many of us haven't grown up with the self-awareness emotional intelligence or conflict resolution skills to engage that well right so i can see why a lot of people avoid it it's very uncomfortable and and also potentially one one of the other symptoms of white patriarchy like you're not supposed to stir up shit you know that's true Mm -hmm. i've also heard that disagreeableness is like a can be considered just like a general personality trait and some people just have mm-hmm. it. And I think it's yep, interesting that, that we don't really know how to deal with that. And I mm-hmm. think that, I think there's white fragility in that yes, too. Absolutely. There is. Yeah, yeah. Which I think speaks to what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Well, cheers. Well, so before we, before we part ways, is there anything else that you want to say? Anything mm-hmm. that maybe we missed in this that, you want to end on? You feel good? Maybe I'll just say that I am grateful for starting to get free because that has allowed me to listen to the stories of so many people and their background and their perspective on life and humanity and the divine and I am better for it. I feel like I still have a lot to learn and I love the liberation of just knowing that I have a lot to learn, right? And so I guess I wanna say y'all are free and you're also getting free and so go learn what that means for you. Nice, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Soul Stories podcast. These conversations are very special to me. After each one, I feel more connected to myself and the community our team is building. I hope you are able to walk out with something for your own life and the journey you are on. I would love and greatly appreciate if you could leave a review or share this episode with someone you care about. It all helps Soul Stories grow and make the impact we hope to make. Until next time... This is Danny signing off.